downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hello, Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to Objection to the Rule for June 3rd, 2018. I'm Ori Givens. Coming up, the on-again, off-again summit with North Korea is back on and we'll discuss the latest. Plus, Roseanne's successful reboot canceled after racist tweets cause a row. And we'll talk about gender in Judaism and one female rabbinical student's experience right here. You're listening to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned. Good afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Objection to the Rule. We're back after a couple of weeks off. We've got our full crew in the studio. How is everybody doing? Good. Wonderful. Good. It's Pride Month. We're going to talk about some Pride Month stuff. we got the news coming up. But first, we are going to join, be joined by a special guest. Uh, Leora, Leora Albert. Leora. Yes, I got that right. Uh, just finished the degree in Jewish education, is now in rabbinical school. She's here to share her insight on gender and Judaism and more. So... Or go ahead and take it away, Violet. Sure. So uh, welcome to the studio, Leora. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so could, first off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Yeah, so my name is Leora. I am. I just completed a master's degree in Jewish education. I am also a rabbinical student. I will be ordained in two years. Um, I've lived for two years in Israel, and I've really, I'm really making my life out of studying Judaism, progressive Judaism. I'm a reform rabbinical student. Um, and looking at what it means to take Judaism forward and how we can make Judaism relevant to the 21st century. Nice. And I know rabbinical school is kind of a commitment, right? It's, yeah. um, it's not just sort of a one-year, two-year program, right? So how, how long is the program? It's five years total. The first year of school is, takes place on our campus in Jerusalem. Um, I go to Hebrew Union College. There's a campus in Los Angeles, and that's where I study. Um, yeah, five years, long time. Nice. And what, so what sort of brought you into that scene? It's not a choice that a lot of people make mm-hmm. to go into rabbinics or into clergy, right out, especially right out of school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I wanted to be a rabbi since I was actually a teenager. I mean, I was always drawn to the Jewish community. I made my life out of Judaism and, and youth group and my synagogue, and I loved Hebrew school. So and I was close to my rabbi growing up, and, and I was really interested in that and involved. And, like, I had this kind of light bulb moment one time, and I was like, hmm, you know, someone becomes a rabbi and makes Judaism their job. Like, you don't have to have a career where you're in an office all day. Like, this could be my career, and how exciting could that be? So I was a teenager when I had that moment of realization, and since then, obviously, I've gone through college and I've entered school, and my reasons for wanting to become a rabbi have actually changed since I entered school. And now I'm really drawn to people and to making my career out of really being involved in people's big events, both good and bad, and really being there for them and getting to know them. Um, and I think Judaism is one method of making life kind of meaningful and setting aside specific times and kind of punctuating big events in our lives. And and if I can be a, a leader who helps 
bring that to people's lives and I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, yeah. That's great. And when you graduate in about two years, you're not just going to be a rabbi. You're going to be a woman rabbi, which is, you know, rabbis have existed for thousands of years. Women rabbis, not so much. So is that uh, was that part of your decision? And is that part of your experience now in school? Yeah. So I think when I was younger, before I entered school, I didn't realize how much my experience would be defined by the fact that I'm a woman. I think, you know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't. I wasn't aware so much of the limitations that I would face as a woman. And now being in school, I've unfortunately become much more aware of kind of the idea that I'm not just going to be a rabbi, but I'm always going to be a woman rabbi. And that's different, especially because, you know, I'm in a liberal field of Judaism. I'm going to be a reform rabbi and, you know, half of my class is made up of women. But in the larger Jewish community, like women are make up a minority and a lot of communities like women are not welcome to become leaders of Judaism, to become rabbis, cantors, and especially they're not also welcome to do a lot of the rituals and, you know, traditions that we think of as part of Judaism. So if I may interject, yeah. um, what is it about uh, uh, what? Why has reformed uh, Judaism been able to rationalize what is uh, why how have they been able to rationalize being able to have uh, female rabbis while yeah. orthodox judaism has not so i just want to know what the yeah the transition yeah so reform judaism is um um it's it is defined as a modern strain denomination of Judaism. So we really, and, and, and the reason for that is because in, in Judaism, the way Jews live their lives and practice Judaism is based on a, something called halacha, which is Jewish law. And for Reformed Jews, we believe that halacha, which is written or comes from our Torah and then has been passed down in other commentaries and other books, we believe that the Torah was not directly given by God. And so it's up for interpretation and it's, you know, it's we are free to interpret halakha, Jewish law, to, to really match how we as 21st century Jews want to practice it. It's not like stuck in the past. It's not directly from God. It's up for interpretation to really match our lifestyle today. And that means there's a lot of flexibility. And as times have changed and as women have been welcomed into careers and fields that they once were not welcomed into, like that includes... Um, female rabbis and a reinterpretation of how women can practice Judaism. Well, does it say in any form of older form of the law that women can't be rabbis? No, no. no. So, yeah. so the, so Orthodox Judaism has adopted this policy. That's not from any rule. So something about Hebrew is that it's a gendered language. So um, in the part of the Torah where it says, you know, Jews received Torah, it's talk it says B'nai Israel, which is sons of Israel, which is men. And so, you know, so it's always been gendered in that way, and it's always been assumed by traditional Jews that it's just for men only, and men are bound to a lot of the Jewish laws and um our our Jewish law like actions that we do, they're called mitz mitzvahs or mitzvot. And so men are required to do a lot more mitzvot than women are in traditional Judaism, but the Torah doesn't specifically say anywhere that women can't. If I can interject something, mm -hmm. um, having um, 
been sent <laughs> to a lot of um, Christian and, and Catholic schools when I was growing up and like really having to study that. I don't think it's an um, an issue unique to Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the religious texts having been written in languages that were yeah. gendered, I think it's just historically language has been gendered. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's more a reflection of the culture than any culture and cultures of past and sometimes present too, of more than anything else. So, um, and I've seen it's I've seen it in other um, faiths as well, where we're kind of breaking down the language and sort of looking at the language and the terms and the tenses of verbs and nouns, for example, to kind of demonstrate how wait it's not really exclusive of one gender, say a practice or a tradition or a right. Mm-hmm. It's just it's the way things have been interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, someone brought it to my attention years ago. There's nothing um, in Catholic doctrine. It says women, I mean, they can't be ordained as priests, but there are certain um, other roles that are traditionally held by men in the Catholic Church where there's nothing actually in the text that says women can't hold these positions. Mm-hmm. It's just they've traditionally been relegated to, you know, nuns, the role of nun at most, if you're going to live like a holy order, that, that right. this is what you get. So I, I don't think it's something unique to Judaism. I think that's just, this is, you know, understanding the line between like the culture and what the religious texts actually Right. And and like a lot of the practices were made, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so it's it's any way of practicing is also product of the culture that it's being mm-hmm. created. And, you know, mm-hmm. so you can't expect something that was made, you know, 2000 years ago to be uh, exactly how we would write it today in our 21st century life. Right. Uh, the, the other interesting uh, thing you mentioned is uh studying um you just finished a master's in jewish education mm-hmm. and i'm curious uh why you wanted to go that route in addition to uh studying rabbinics yeah i mean i think edu- i mean a rabbi traditionally is an educator or a teacher i think i think education is kind of the path i think the, the way we're going to change all religion and the way we're going to change judaism and educate the you know our future generations in the best way that we want them to kind of live their best lives and create the world that we want a better world. Um, it's education. It's kind of the basis for everything. So I, I, I have a lot of experience teaching, but I really wanted to learn how to like do something different and mm-hmm. educate kids in a creative way and make them kind of re kind of re- rethink what the world can look like. And, and I, and I didn't have the background before I earned my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you also, uh, not only did you choose to go in the direction of Jewish education, but you uh, had a concentration in Israel education Mm -hmm. in particular. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this past year, I, in addition to earning my master's degree, I got a master's concentration in Israel education through an organization called the I-Center. And it's a fellowship based out of Chicago. And I attended conferences throughout the year and I'll also travel to Israel for a research trip um, later this year. And really it is a program aimed at teaching Jewish educators and clergy kind of how to responsibly and confidently teach about Israel and have conversations about Israel and be honest with students about what Israel looks like in the future of Israel and how, and you know, yeah. So what's a responsible conversation from a Jewish educator's perspective? I think it's being kind of aware of all the nuances and the different perspectives and the different cultures that all care so much about Israel and all mm-hmm. care so much about humanity and make and like making this country, Israel, 
better than it currently is and and not shying away from the difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, you know, considering the contemporary conversations surrounding Israel and its place in the political world and its relationships with other countries mm-hmm. around the world, that's a really interesting perspective because a lot of times when people have discussions about Israel, there are a lot of hardline people that don't believe that that those difficult conversations about, you know, the idea of visit occupation or, mm-hmm. or the relationship with Palestinians that mm-hmm. also lay claim to that land. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the current media and their conversations about Israel either do them responsibly or irresponsibly from your perspective? What are, what are things that are in the media that maybe don't have the correct or a, a balanced light shown on them? Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is just, because I've lived there for two years, I have gotten perspectives from people just on the street, my, my landlord, like, <laughs> you know, that you can't get by reading the American media from. So being there and talking to the people and actually visiting, you know, I've been to the West Bank and spent time in Ramallah, like being on the ground in those places and just seeing the humanity of people and looking at them in, in the faces is, is totally different than reading about in the New York Times, you know, mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, in the pa- in the past couple of weeks, I've I've read many different articles, different perspectives from all the you know the Times of Israel, Haaretz, New York Times, and they all are trying to responsibly kind of describe what's happening, and they all come from a little and I and I think it's important to read all of them, many different sources, because they're all giving a little bit different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But that's not a substitute for being there and talking to people. Mm. And. I know you you had maybe multiple, definitely nuanced feelings about living in Mm -hmm. Israel. You lived in Israel for two separate years, once Mm -hmm. in college and once your first year of rabbinical school, Mm -hmm. a year after college. Um, What what was Israel to you as a person, as an individual living there? Um, It's a hard place. It's a really intense place. I lived in Jerusalem for both years, and the air there is is heavy with all these different struggles and identities and different people struggling to gain hold of this land who, who think of it as their home. And so you're walking down the street and you're, and I'm so aware of, of kind of the baggage that I'm carrying around with me and how people are viewing me as I'm walking down the street. Um, and it's challenging. Like, as a woman, as someone who when I went to the store and people ask me and people can tell I'm American, they ask me why I'm there and then I tell them I'm studying to be a rabbi and most of the time they're so confused because in Israel the reformed Jewish movement is not the same as it is in the United States. Um, I was I was just constantly kind of on edge carrying this around with me. Mm. How, is, um, how is the reformed Jewish movement different in Israel than it is in the United States? Okay, so my school, Hebrew Union College, there are four campuses around the world, one in Jerusalem and then three in the United States. So all of the Reformed rabbis who have been ordained in Israel came through my school. There are, have been a little bit over 100, I think, this year. The 100th Reformed rabbi was ordained in Israel. And Reformed Judaism is not seen as the legitimate form of Judaism by the 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 it's called the Rabbanut, like the head rabbi of Jerusalem, which who kind of sets the rules about what it means to be Jewish in Israel. 
Reform Judaism is not recognized by the Rabbanut as a legitimate form of Judaism. And funding is given to Reform uh, synagogues, but but in a different way. It's given from a different fund. It, it's under the recreational fund. It's not, it's not, it's, so it's not considered a religion. So you're a recreational Judaism. Jew. Yeah. You're a recreational rabbi. Right. People, I mean, people. Rubenix is your hobby, basically. Yeah, people. You just want to have a good time and be Jewish. Exactly. People, people have laughed in my face when I tell, when I tell them I'm going to be a rabbi. And that's, that's happened in the United States as well. Um, yeah, so it's, it's very a very small community. There are very remote synagogues all throughout Israel, but I think the struggle it's a it's a big struggle and most of this society doesn't recognize reform Judaism. Hmm. Do you think it's because that you know people that do hold more conservative, more, you know, quote unquote traditional values don't believe in the idea that the religion needs this type of reform? Yeah, I think we make I think Reformed Jews make certain Jews really angry because they think that we're kind of, you know, desecrating the religion and we're doing all these things that aren't approved by halakha, the Jewish law. And we we interpret Jewish law in a different way. And it's really like I think it's I think it's painful to a lot of these Jews that think it that think being Jewish means practicing all the mitzvot, these actions as close to the Torah says, but then later there's the Talmud and Mishnah and commentaries and all, and it's been redacted throughout time on what it means exactly to practice these actions. But I think we just make them really angry. Mm. When I think there's so many, when you talk about religion, whatever type of religion, there are all of these different branches, mm-hmm. you know, and all of these different interpretations from people because people culturally work to integrate their own personal lives with religion in mm-hmm. some way or, or, you know, don't. And it works to integrate within various different cultures that have different rules, different ideas of ways of living, different, you know, things that they hold to be important. So it from like an outside perspective, it makes complete sense that different people could interpret, you know, these laws differently. Yeah. And actually, Reform Judaism is the largest branch of Judaism in the United States. And since the United States has, you know, the most Jews in the world, it's probably in the world. And. And um, and I think Reform Judaism, Progressive Judaism, like yeah, I think Judaism is also moving away from strict denominations. A lot mm-hmm. of people just don't fit into specific boxes, but they are progressive in the way they observe laws. Um, I think that I think I think religion in the United States is changing, and I think Reform Judaism, Progressive Judaism is going to be what kind of allows people to hold on to their Jewish identities and still be a part of the changing world. That we're in mm. and i think some might say that the same is happening to christians in yeah. america to muslims in america because in america we look for well I, I can't say that generally but america does have a lot more progressive ideas in context with religion because mm-hmm. i think the people that came here sought more progressive ideas and the people that live here under these religious contexts realize that american society kind of begets more um differentiation among belief systems yeah i think yeah i I think part of what it means to be american it's hard because part of what it means to be american is to kind of wear a melting pot to welcome all these different types of people and so to hold on to a uh, religious practice that doesn't really welcome that is really kind of it brings tension so i think uh, what i was about to say was almost the same thing that you just said 
um, it is, you know, the. I mean, you have no choice but to become a different version of who you are once you leave the place that you're from, you know, because you're only that way because you were in that place. And once you leave and you go to a new place that is different, then you have no choice but to acclimate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And we do, and there are there are examples of, of, of groups that haven't acclimated the Hasidic Jews in, you know, in mm-hmm. Williamsburg, Brooklyn. They are a very strict community and uh, their laws are so strict that they circumvent the laws of the United States at times. So. Right. And, and as time moves forward, it seems like they have to become stricter mm-hmm. to hold on to their I, traditions. I, um, I live in a neighborhood of Brooklyn that borders Hasidic traditionally Hasidic Williamsburg and so the population with its growth has kind of moved into our neighborhood and I've noticed over the last couple of years I think I you know um they've gone from kind of just being insular to like in kind of very much keeping to themselves and um to kind of being outwardly hostile to someone anyone not a member of the community I I don't I'm not even the way they kind of function is something so independent of any other um, even sect of Hasidism, I think they're pretty extreme. I almost feel it's a little like they're they're the way out there. You know, it's kind of we're dealing with a different animal with those guys, um, so to speak. Um, but question then, um, what role, if any, do um, people, members of the progressive um, Jewish movement mm-hmm. feel they might have with regard to um, issues within the larger community, or th- you know, say the um, I think a lot of things go, are going down around happening in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, what um, role, if any, does does the progressive Jews? Um, what do they, they have in that um, in terms of speaking out or activism on the local level? I mean, it sounds like they in Israel. There's a lot of there's they're kind of in the minority and mm-hmm. not you know kind of viewed as being. It, there isn't a lot of credence given to the practice the way they practice Judaism. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, what what role, if any, do more progressive Jews have um, addressing certain social concerns within the community or yeah. political concerns within the community. Yeah, so I think there there are different organizations that are using Jewish identity and Jewish values to to try to think about how we can change Israel and improve Israel for the better. You know, if not now, true, uh, like different Jewish organizations. Some of them we've had. On oh, the show. okay. Yeah. Um, and also, I, for me, the way I see a really important role of mine as an American Jewish leader, as a liberal Jewish leader, it's really show people that I can support Israel and want Israel to be better and still hold liberal values and still be open to the humanity of other people and still be Jewish and kind of hold all these sometimes seen as competing values in one place and you know, Israel has a Israel has a lot of problems, and I and it's and it's by no means perfect, and that doesn't mean I can abandon my care for Israel. It means I have to work a lot harder. I'm making it better, and I want to show other people that I'm committed to doing that. That's great. We, we've got to wrap up this segment, but thank you so much, Leora, for coming on the show and sharing your perspectives with us. Thank you, everybody, for having me. All right, coming back after the break, it's Pride Month. We're going to talk a little bit about that in our local and national headlines. Make sure that you check out RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. We've got all kinds of shows. We just launched some new ones this week, so check those out. You can also take our app with you. You can download it on iTunes or on the App Store, and you can get it in Google Play. We'll be right back with more Objection to the Rule in just a moment, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So that was Heather Small Pride, one of the pride anthems that we love this time of year. And it is Pride Month for the second time. President Trump did not sign a proclamation uh, noting June as Pride Month. Instead, it's, among other things, National Oceans Month. It's National African American Music Month. Um, What does it mean that we've seen this shift? You know, one of the things that we talked about on the show um, was that the you know the rights the the forward movement on the LGBT community uh, has stalled you know from the perspective of a lot of people they took down the White House page about LGBT issues it's obviously not a part of the GOP platform what are your thoughts about this idea that this president this administration doesn't seem to have the same support um, that we had in the last administration. I don't know if I would make uh, a blanket statement that um, that LBGT rights um, have stalled completely because I feel like maybe um, in legislature it has stalled. I mean, but I think that socially in a lot of ways, people are pushing the agenda on their own. I've never seen so many transgender people in the spotlight, Mm -hmm. like not being spotlighted because they're considered freaks, but spotlighted because they win public office, which is in which case was that where a transgendered woman won Virginia. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a, that's not a very liberal state by Mm -hmm. stand by our our country standards. So I feel like we as a country socially are pushing the agenda forward and calling it out when we see something wrong. And I feel like, the White House and the government are operating almost separately than we are socially as a country. Right. Well, I don't want to say that, you know, I, I think that the, the generality comes in the fact that there are still over 30 states that don't have protections for LGBT people. You right. can still be fired in. And people have been several fired. states yeah. for being LGBT. You can be denied housing um, for having, you know, LGBT identity. There are bills around the country that are trying to combat conversion therapy, which is still legal in many parts of the country. Um, And those were things that were being pushed forward um, before this administration came in. So I don't think it's unfair to say that there is not much forward movement specifically within, you know, rights and protections afforded by the government um, with regard to LGBT rights. I think that there's, there's data that supports that. Now, I do agree that socially, I think we have seen changes. You know, we see more people of all types of LGBT identities that are in the media. Uh, We see more people that are speaking out and able to share their stories. But at the same time, we still see LGBT homelessness at a high rate. You know, but you you know what? And I retract what I said. Um, When we were discussing the Me Too movement, I said, it is it hasn't gone straight to the top until laws are passed and Mm -hmm. cases are won. So, yeah, I've, you know, I've, I recognize that. You're right. But it, yeah, the law is kind of the last st- uh, stage in a lot of ways of of uh, of our social progress. I think that's why people saw marriage equality as such a win, you know, mm-hmm. that codified through that decision that this right couldn't be taken away. There are all these others, but this right specifically could not be taken away. Do we think that, you know, looking at how we're, I mean, we're in New York state where there is a lot of progressive ideas, but there's still some limitations. Um, what do you think that these types of social issues, what impact do you think that they might have as we go into midterm elections? 
um, coming up later this year, where we have a lot of different legislatures up for for um, for reelection. We have a governor in the state of New York that's up for reelection, and his uh, Democratic rival is somebody who people say is much more forward on social issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think that. I think that people see that the laws are not protecting them anymore or not protecting even people who are not don't identify as LGBT there. Mm-hmm. They see and they're upset if they're in the progressive movement that they're not uh, being protected anymore. Um, and they're seeking out leadership that's going to uh, do that protection. If this if the federal government is not going to do it increasingly in places like New York, we want our state government to ensure that it's going to happen. I think people are more active now and will be continue to be more active through the midterm elections in response to this because I, I think a lot of people like they don't have a choice. It's like, wait a second, if we don't get out there, um, vote for run the people that will protect our rights at the local level, we we won't have them because at the federal level they're they're kind of just getting ignored and kind of brushed aside. Um, and I think we're already seeing that. So for like case in point, the um, in Virginia elected a trans person to office. Um, and who actually ran largely on a platform of a quality of life issue mm-hmm. in the town, um, it, you know, like traffic stuff. So it's like, wait a second, we're going to listen to who actually like we, we don't mind attention. that it's a transfer. Wait, yeah. you're paying attention to what affects me day to day. So I think that really said a lot to that election on that at, at that point. But I think people are, are galvanized and they're active. And I I, um, I think the Republican Party is starting to realize that it, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to get a little nervous, too. And it, but I think what, in a way that I think is a good way, because they're saying, like, wait a second, the leadership in the party is not reflective of the majority of the party. We, mm-hmm. it's something there's there's more and more um, separating within that party. It It is it's, you know, when Trump was first elected, I was very much, well, he's going to do something just because, uh, you know, if. Obama was associated with something like, say, for example, marriage equality. I'm going to try to undo it just because mm-hmm. Obama did it. Um, and I still think there's a little bit of that with this administration. But there's also I, I feel more and more. I, I think it's I, I'm this could be the presence of an influence of Mike Pence, who mm-hmm. is and, a, a, and is know, in charge and, of and the I, social issues. Exact, agenda for exactly. The White House. And yes. I think like slowly, but these things are kind of getting pushed through. And it's something that his. Trump's base isn't going to mind so much about because they're going to think of it as a religious, a personal freedom issue, who I rent to, who I employ, who I, you know, exist with. Well, <laughs> so, we've seen the rollback but, of, of guidance under Title IX for the protection of uh, right. transgender students in schools. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen same protections rollback for students with disabilities in schools I think, I think under education. Not that Mike Pence wasn't ever, like, not scary, but I think people, you know, because he's kind of this low-key, he comes off very low-key, and he's mm-hmm. kind of there kind of smiling and looking a little weird and, <laughs> you know, press conferences, and he lets Trump do the talk. And we forget, you know, there there are other folks in the administration we got to really be worried about because, mm-hmm. the, and this is the slow influence of someone like Mike Pence with someone, his background and agenda. Um, who, by the way, not only supports conversion therapy, but says he kind of participated in some of it, if that tells you anything about Mike Pence. Um, I can't okay. go down that yeah, road. But anyway, just want to that's tell a, you. That's a long, that's dark fun. road it's that I cannot. Wait, are you saying Pence's family? We're not going to go. We're not, we, we not. Okay, are you so claiming him? President Trump announced that he will meet with Kim Jong-un of North Korea <laughs> in a summit in Singapore on June 18th. Last week, the summit was called off in a letter by the White House that many critiqued. It was a very interesting letter if you haven't read it so first of all do you think this is the end is the summit going to happen and what do you think it's going to accomplish at this point we've been talking about this possibility of a meeting 
the administration's influence in or in the Korean region? What what do you think? I think that the most important thing that came out of Trump and North Korea has already happened, and that's the uh, reconciliation and summit multiple of uh, North and South Korea. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that was sort of the perfect storm of Trump's strong, strong man tactics or like wild man tactics and um, the regime change in South Korea. So mm-hmm. they went from a uh, more of a hardliner uh, leader to someone who was interested in reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That's happened. If we want to thank Trump for that, that's our choice. I don't think the will he or won't he in terms of summit meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un is of as much importance at this point. I feel like with a lot of things that Trump does, uh, there's not a lot of follow through. Like Mm -hmm. we talk about the tariffs. For how long have we been talking about the steel tariffs? And they haven't really officially been put in effect. He dangles prizes like DACA, and then takes them away. He dangles punishments and never follows, sounds like his lawyer, follows through on them. And so I feel like the uh, I feel like the uh, meeting with Kim Jong-un will be something that he keeps pushing forward, and I don't think it'll actually happen. Until there's another convenient I, distraction. Yes. Yeah. I don't think it'll happen either. It was canceled once, it could be canceled again. Like, I, I don't... What I really like Violet's point is that the 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 salient news is that North Korea and South Korea met independently yeah. of Trump. They don't need um, us. They don't need. And, and I think I think maybe that was the catalyst to say, oh yeah, we're going to put this back on because they literally kind of took the spotlight off mm-hmm. of whatever negotiations were happening between the Trump administration, between Mike Pompeo and North and South Korea, and North and South Korea were like, wait, no, we don't need you. Right. But there has been talk that Trump or the administration has promised some sort of financial package to North Korea. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that Kim Jong-un cares about meeting Trump, but he cares about getting his payout, Mm -hmm. if that indeed was ever on the table. And I think that is what it's not. I don't think it's about them meeting anymore. I think it's about what is America going to do for North Korea, Kim Jong-un. That's a whole interesting thing. And I, I want to kind of delve into that a little bit because we think about all the things, you know, we still have Puerto Rico that's not getting proper funding. We just re, we, we just re- learned that there are so many more uh, yeah, like deaths. 4,200 at than, least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 5,400. 95 was the last number. Yeah, <laughs> much more than I think there were 65 or something reported. It was a, it was a much lower number. It was, mm-hmm. a, I mean, dramatically lower number, but there's been issues getting funding to that region, so much so that states like New York City or New York State have been pushing their own funding efforts um, towards Puerto Rico. But we have money to help uh, North Korea and provide an aid package to North Korea. What and, and what does this say about the idea that this administration was supposed to be domestically focused? Take it away, Larry. Uh, no, I just think the administration wants to become responsible for meeting with Kim Jong-un and like, being the ones that do this so mm-hmm. much so so that it's stamped in history that Trump did this. It's just and about it, getting the deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's and I think the domestic care falls on the back burner when it comes to creating this reputation for the Trump administration. Hmm. I mean, I don't, the thing is, is Puerto Rico is not important to Trump. And I, it's obvious. And I and um, and, I, and there is probably a large 
his followers uh, and a large group of people in this country who believe that Puerto Rico is not important mm-hmm. and probably believe, believe that Puerto Rico is just an island that sucks off the United States and not an island that kind of has its own thing going on, but that is also part of the United States and has really no rights, mm-hmm. even though it's governed by us. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, where it's somehow important in the eyes of Trump, he would have went in there. And I don't, I think he did not see it as something glamorous and sexy and, 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 and glitzy. I really feel like when he makes these, uh, uh, he makes decisions, he looks at what is going to be like the most exciting thing or like what is going to be something big and helping Puerto Rico uh, doesn't seem big or important to him. He does big stuff. Okay. Um, let's move on to uh, the tariffs discussion. You mentioned that, and now President Trump has been in the news because he did announce that there were going to be tariffs on aluminum and steel for our NAFTA partners for Canada and Mexico, as well as the EU. Obviously, there was a lot of backlash, both internationally and domestically, from this announcement. And this is all about, around discussions that we need to have some sort of reform to the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA. Do you, first of all, is this just a way to, you know, I guess what is the motivation of this announcement to alienate, you know, some of our closest allies with these, I believe, 25% tariffs on, on imports of aluminum and steel? Trump is, is ludicrous. Um, it's, it's been shown that uh, the United States, especially when in regards to Mexico, we make off better than Mexico does on the NAFTA deal. We send all our, do you know how many people in the United States send their products off to be handmade in Mexico and they're only able to do that, all these small businesses, because of this trade agreement and they otherwise couldn't afford to be in business and they bring it back to the United States or they export it to other places and they make even more money. And so uh, to me, it's like, when you these protectionist tariffs are not protecting us at all, it's actually destroying it. Like putting, um, you know, we, we we use the aluminum and and steel to make things, and then we sell them to other people at much higher prices. So I don't understand why yeah. he doesn't understand the business model that the United States is engaged in. We are not a factory. We're not an industrial nation anymore. We're just we have gotten beyond that. You know, England is also at that stage. They're beyond the Industrial Revolution. We don't need factories anymore. And they belong. They, it's more appropriate to have them in other places because they have workforces that and they have space and they and it makes much more financial sense for, for them to be there. And I don't know. And we've gone past the model he's thinking of, of coal miners and factory workers and and and. And I and I think that he is he just doesn't have an understanding of how this country works. Well, we make off better because, of course, we do. You know, like we we've engineered all of these agreements, mm-hmm. including NAFTA, to benefit the United States primarily. You know, we have like a overwhelming vote in a lot of these alliances among nations. And we use that to our advantage. We have for centuries. It's not something that people weren't thinking about. We, we made it so that we have the advantage. And when we undo these agreements, we take our advantage away. I think it's because his base is made up so much of these people who, who are struggling because of, our, 
because we don't have factories, because that's not what our economy is based on anymore. And so I think he just wants to please the people who voted for him. But, you know, if you go to and I don't know if uh, if any of you have, uh, have spent time in Canada, but Canada is Canada. flooded with American products. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why. And, and, and for, for them, for him to say that, like, NAFTA is a bad deal. Just go to Canada or Mexico, Canada more than Mexico, and see how, like, all the American products we have there. Cars and food products and clothing products. And, like, I mean, we we have so much in the the Canadian market. It's like our extended American mm-hmm. market. And it's right next door. And so I don't understand how, what numbers he's using. I wish I could... I wish instead of making these announcements, he would explain the logic to us and show us whatever math he used to do come to this conclusion, because I don't understand. And I can barely even debate this issue because I can't even understand where he is coming from. It's like somebody staring at a at a at a, at a red desk and telling me we have to throw it away. It's purple. <laughs> it's you're actually you're you're summarizing this. Wonderfully, I think, because part of what I mean, when people you want to try to have the discussion about like something like this, you kind of go, but where to come from? It's so out of left field. I don't know if he's doing that intentionally, like, go ahead and try and debate me. I mean, because there's or it's just he kind of tends to run off at the mouth. I'll say that I'll phrase it like that. Um, the president tends to run off at the mouth and kind of just kind of rolls with it. He he improvises. Um, he can think on his feet when he's talking. I'll give him that. But it doesn't I mean think what he's saying is based in fact. And we are, I think, accustomed to having. Um, our president or senators, world leaders, kind of, you know, Tony Blair was famous for giving the stats every time. Man, he could run off numbers like nobody's business, you know, and it, we're used to having some kind of facts or um, statistics backing up, you know, a proposed idea or position, and we don't have them now. But you know, he really hit the nail on the head there. It's like you, you can't really debate it because where'd it come, where'd it come from? <laughs> you know? I know it's made making talking about politics and news near impossible because it's just saying, well, no, we didn't. <laughs> and then it's like, well, what, what response do we, how do we have a conversation about news in this climate? That's a, one of the things actually I've been thinking about is how do we talk about what's going on in this country when we feel like completely in the dark about mm-hmm. what's like about the the entire like logic behind it? Well, how do we talk about it what's makes, going on? It makes it hard to understand the depth of decision making. Because there's so much that we're missing, you know, even reporting on what's happening in government and politics, you have to do a lot more research and a lot more digging, a lot more investigation of the backstory behind things, because it's just not out there for you to consume. Um, Let's talk about Roseanne. The popular revamp of the comedy was canceled by ABC this week. And the reason was not ratings. It was because of accusations of racism related to a tweet from the show's star Roseanne Barr that likened former White House advisor Valerie Jarrett to an ape. Among other tweets, there was a tweet about George Soros and being a Nazi, um, all kinds of interesting things coming out of Roseanne Barr's Twitter uh, over the last couple of days. Now, those tweets caused a swift and immediate action by ABC. They canceled the show. They issued a statement saying, basically, we can't accept this. She tried to blame Ambien. Ambien's like, we know that ambient doesn't cause racism. It was a very interesting week in popular culture news. So, But it also calls people to wonder, did the network overstep in immediately canceling her show? What do you think? I think um, it, Roseanne's been 
tweeting things like this for a while. This isn't new. And I think if they've been paying attention to her Twitter, uh, they would. Why did nobody did you look at her Twitter I think before it's they like gave no one, her the show yeah, back? Yeah, that's what I, that's what went through my mind exactly. Like, why did you give her a show in the first place? Maybe they weren't looking at her Twitter, but you know, maybe it's just she. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that they overstepped things because it's not. It's if this is like I, I personally, I don't know. That, I I don't feel that they necessarily overstepped things because um, especially I'm hearing a lot of talk of like they want to keep the show just not with her on it. They feel they have a strong enough cast. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and I th- I would agree. I think the cast is actually very strong. The writing's good enough. They can they could work something out if they just wanted to keep the show without her to send a message. But yeah, I I'm not I wish maybe some networks would pay attention to people's social media pages before giving them the platform, you know, because she's kind of been off that deep end for a while now. <laughs> you know, I can't even applaud ABC for that. I really feel like, okay, we, we know who Roseanne is mm-hmm. and we could, uh, and I, you know, without even just the culture, just the, just the place she has in culture, you know, where she is politically. And I re- and, and the comments that she made, recently they got her that got her in trouble are just they're like ordinary everyday stuff that she says and i thought what is up with abc it's like you know what it is it's like i mean it's like inviting like a like a rowdy bunch of people at your party and saying don't be rowdy and then they just rowdy and then you're like you get mad and you kick them out and i'm like no you invited this person who does this stuff you should just let them do it and and i don't know what you were expecting when you brought Roseanne on the sh- uh, on t- back on TV, and I think if they wanted to really send a message, I think what they should have done is fired Roseanne, <laughs> hired her nemesis, and like and 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 uh, or no, they should have hired Rosie. Oh, they should have hired Rosie, put her in her put her in, in place of Roseanne, and watch her sizzle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're listening, ABC, but I know you're not listening. But if you were listening, that would be a great suggestion. So let's take a moment. We'll take a little bit of a break. And after that, we'll talk about local headlines. Make sure you check out all the great shows that we have on RFB. We have over 65 shows. We can find them all on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. While you're there, make sure you click on the little green pledge button at the top and donate to help keep us on the air. We'll be back in just a moment right here on Objection to the Rule, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Now let's take a moment to explore some of the local news that's been happening around the five boroughs. Rachel. Hi, everybody. Okay, so the city has announced it will increase efforts to combat LGBT youth homelessness um, by opening a 20-bed shelter. Sometime this year, the location has not yet been determined. Um it is going to provide services for youth up to age 24, a change in the typical youth shelter policy from age 21. Um, I would like to throw just note here, the city council did vote um, recently to extend the age of what's considered youth shelter age to age tw- from age 21 to age 24. Um, but it hasn't been implemented yet uh, because the, basically they're figuring out where to put people. The, yeah. the space needs to be made available in the youth shelters for these people who are still considered youth. Mm-hmm. Um, the city also plans to open two clinics to uh, offer pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP for the prevention of HIV infection. Um, all of this is part of an initiative by the city to combat uh, LGBT youth homelessness. Um, what are your thoughts on the city's plans? I wish there were more beds. Yeah, 20 wish, beds yeah, sounds a little insufficient. 20 beds for a shelter is one yeah. thing, but... Yeah. Like, why make a shelter if you're only going to put 20 beds in it? <laughs> well, you know, what I want to understand is, does the city have a plan? Are there is the plan just to segregate uh, the LBGT community or do they have a plan specific for the uh, for the struggles they face as LBGT and homeless? Because if it's just segregating them. It's not going to work because they already tried to segregate them into a high school and it's turned into like such a disaster. That school is one of the most problem schools in the schools in the city because they just took all of them and put them in one place and thought that's the solution to the problem and not give them an education or a program that is suited for them because that's the only reason to separate something is because you're creating something that they need that that it's different than what other people need. Well, I imagine the thinking there was similar to having women's shelters. You know, if people separate women and sometimes women with children into their own shelter in order to protect them from sexual violence and other uh, other violence. You know, so I could see that sort of translating, oh, like women, okay, transgender, maybe gay and transgender. But you're right, Rosie, it, uh, separating without uh, making a policy change or ensuring their rights and equal services is not going to be a permanent solution. But even when they've separated women, though, into having women's shelters, they've separated because they needed to create a safe space for children as well, because a lot of the women had children and also because the staff had to be all female and like and they had specific services for women in in the shelters. So Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, that's just a more black and white sort of uh issue than it is to serving the LBGT homeless community. Well, I think it does. There there do need to be specific needs met with regard to LGBT um, homeless youth, you know, whether it's dealing with the social stigmas and mental health issues and drug abuse issues that tend to be more prevalent in the, that subset of the population or providing those connections to services. So I think if there, you know, like we said, if there's a policy around it that allows for the growth and the mobility of these individuals related to their stay in the shelter, I think it's a great thing. Um, but if it, there's not those things connected, then it could be problematic. Mm, right. The next story. Okay, the next story is over the Memorial Day weekend, um, here we are, uh, the Animal Care 
control centers of New York experienced a tremendous spike in animals being turned over over that holiday weekend. On average, they usually have about 60 to 90 uh, surrenders in a day at the three shelters in New York City. And that weekend, over 300 were brought in. Um, the workers there are actually attributing it to um, spring birthing patterns. Um, litters are ha- A lot of litters happen in the spring, and they think they just have an excessive amount of animals um, kind of being born and therefore turned in. It is New York City law that any animal being placed for adoption in order to be eligible for adoption has to be spayed or neutered, please. So... Um, in any case, though, this is still a tremendous spike and in animals being submit, um, turned over to shelters. Uh, I think the homeless crisis in New York City is probably con- related to that on the topic of homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, people lose their homes, their pets have to go somewhere. Yeah, I think it's always really sad to see, you know, we we we've have a growing homeless um, inability to accommodate people uh, here in the city and in the region. And that related to this, you have people that, you know, can't care for their animals anymore.